Hey, SEO Nick listeners, thanks for tuning in to the latest podcast on the Talking Shop with Industry Producers segment. Today I'm joined by Thomas Smale from FE International. Uh, Thomas is a website broker uh, and who's been doing this for – how long have you been doing this for now, Thomas? Just over four years. Wow, that's Man, that's fast. So Thomas's company, FE International, is doing uh, over a million dollars in sales uh, themselves, representing nearly $10 million in transactions um, in just four years. That, that's really impressive. Thanks. Uh, so thanks again, man, for joining us today. I'm, I'm really excited to uh, ask you some questions. I know a lot of people listening uh, to this are e-commerce website owners or they work at e-commerce shops, um, you know, probably people who do anywhere from two to $300,000 a year in annual revenue up to $15, $20 million. So sort of that, you know, my understanding is that sweet spot of the, the market that you guys tend to represent. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say that's just about in our range. So I'm excited to, excited to be on. Wonderful. Um, so I guess the, the first question, just to sort of open it up, is uh, can you take us through sort of uh, the general due diligence process for an e-commerce website sale? Yeah, so if we look at it from so our perspective from a broker, we've got quite a standardized process. So for the purpose of this, I'll kind of go over the way we would do it for, for both parties. But obviously, if you're, if you're buying elsewhere or like buying privately, it might be slightly different. But I, I mean, I would definitely encourage anyone looking to either buy a site or sell a business to, to follow a, a due diligence process. Um, so generally speaking, you'd break due diligence down into five parts, and that would be traffic verification, financial verification, owner verification, and then operational technical uh, due diligence, and then legal due diligence. Um, so if we go through those in order, um, and obviously it, like, every business is different, so if you have a business that doesn't necessarily get much traffic, um, then traffic verification wouldn't be a, a massive a massive part of it. But if you've got a site that gets all of its sales online um, and it gets a lot of organic traffic, then traffic verification, generally speaking, industry standard, and most people use Google Analytics these days. Um, yep. So it's a case of figuring out the legitimacy of the traffic that's coming in, making sure that, so there'll be some crossovers here. So, for example, if they're buying traffic, then you'd expect to see that on the financials. And if they're if they're buying traffic but not telling you, then you'd want to make sure it kind of all checks out and, and reconciles. Um, and then you just kind of go through all the different traffic sources, making sure they look legitimate, look for any signs of like paid links or sponsored links that might not necessarily be um, declared. And, I mean, it, it really depends on the sophistication of the, the buyer. But generally speaking, from a, a seller perspective, you would expect just to be very transparent with a buyer, giving them full access to Google Analytics um, and letting them kind of go through and make sure they're happy with everything. Um, no. Obviously, from a, a seller perspective, you want to make sure that you don't just give traffic access to anyone. You want to make sure they're a serious buyer. And generally speaking, we don't give anyone analytics access until they've made um, an offer that's been accepted. Um, but I mean, oh, there's different it. ways to do that. Uh, real quick, just to, to, to parse your words for a second and, and something that just sort of piqued my interest a little bit. When you say um, from a buyer perspective to make sure they're not, they're not paying, there's not any, I guess, paid for links or paying for any links, 
You mean more so links that would be being paid for on an ongoing basis? So, so you know, monthly, quarterly, annual commitments for link placement, or links yeah. that maybe were purchased and paid for at one time? Well, I mean, it could be anything either. I mean, I mean, if they've purchased or bought a link in the past, that's not necessarily an issue. Um, but it's really just like a signaling thing. There's no exact science behind due diligence. It's really, just a case of. So, for example, if you see a lot of links that look like they're from either like a private blog network or they're all from guest posts, then you would want to make sure that they've either declared a cost for that or they're being honest with you. Um, so the main thing, I mean, if you're being a seller, my advice is always people just be honest. If you start hiding things, expect it to come up. But yeah, I mean, so mm -hmm. for example, um, I've seen sites in the past that have ranked well by sponsoring certain events or like charity projects, and that would be a yearly sponsorship. So if, if they're getting a bunch of good links on that, and they're paying, say, a thousand bucks a year to sponsor. You want to make sure that that cost is reflected in the financials. Um, and if it's not, then it's generally a, a, a red flag from a buy perspective, and you want to make sure that um, there's nothing else funny going on there. Um, and then, obviously, buying links in the SEO community, I guess, there's always a divided opinion over whether or not you, you should or shouldn't. So, I guess that's a very that's a subjective part of due diligence. Some buyers will be comfortable with it. I've seen deals deals fall apart before because buyers are not comfortable with it. So that's very much a subjective element. So due diligence is kind of a combination of objective fact-finding and then subjective decision-making. There's no right or wrong way to do it. What one person sees as a risk, another might see as an opportunity. So it's really just a, a verification. And then depending on the buyer or the seller, it's just a case of kind of figuring out what's okay and what's not okay um and from a buyer's perspective you would never expect you would never expect it to be perfect there's always something that goes wrong unfortunately um so you just want to be reasonable entering the process and the same from a seller perspective if you're the one selling the business you want to make sure that you're transparent and you've got answers for people um and if you've tried to hide things then expect it to come back to you especially if you've got a sophisticated buyer who knows what they're doing it's unlikely they're gonna it's unlikely you're gonna get away with spending 20,000 a year on sponsored links and hoping no one notices um, <laughs> so I guess that moves on to the next part of due diligence which is owner verification um, it's probably like the, the most minor part of due diligence and again it's very subjective so it's just kind of figuring out who's the owner and again if you're if you're the seller, your due diligence, you would do this stage would be the same way for the buyer. You would want to make sure the buyer's legit. So obviously if you're a if you're an owner, let's say you're a big company like Internet Brands, for example, um, they would they're gonna have less of an issue getting a deal over the line um than some random guy working out of his mum's basement who has basically no no company, no no like audit trail or anything, no history. Um so it's always important to kind of verify the owner at least says who like is who they say they are. Um, look them up on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Most, I mean, these days it's quite easy to find find who people are. And again, that's just a subjective part. And obviously the the big red flag would be there if one person owns the website via who is, and then um, a different person is trying to sell you the site. Uh, yeah. that's probably less common at the higher end of the market and more of a less sophisticated scam you might see on some smaller webmaster forums. Um, so it's really just a case of making sure you're comfortable with, with who you're dealing with. 
Um, and then you move on to operational and technical due diligence. Again, this is probably the most subjective element and it really depends on the business. So if you're or if you've got an e commerce business and let's say you're on the you're on a Magento platform, um a buyer might want to make sure that if there's any custom plugins or extensions that have been used that they've got got the correct licenses or if they've been custom built they've got access to clean code, they've got a programmer who's who's done it. Um and they know what they're doing. So that's, that's a very like subjective element, but making sure that everyone's kind of comfortable with the platform. So from a, a seller perspective, it's always important to use a platform that buyers are familiar with. And if you decide to build something yourself, um, if you have, say, a SaaS business or something along those lines, like SaaS being software as a service, um, then make sure any custom programming or code you create is, is well documented for a buyer. Um, obviously, the easier you make it for a buyer to understand, the more likely they are to go through. Um, and then operational, again, is quite subjective, but that probably the biggest point here is how much time does the business take to run? And it's probably, in all my years of doing this, probably the the most regularly misrepresented part. So if you're looking to buy a business, the seller will say, hey, look, I spend 10 hours a week on it. Um, but when you get to due diligence, you want to f- make sure it's always impossible to know exactly, but you want to kind of figure out whether or not the tasks they are doing would match up to the number of hours they claim. Um, cause obviously if you're buying, if you're buying a business and they claim it's 10 hours a week, you don't want to then take over and find out it's 60. Um, so which most entrepreneurs are guilty of doing is most entrepreneurs I know will work 60 hours a week, but then when they're selling their business, they say they work five. So um, that's from a buyer perspective, something you want to verify. And again, it kind of goes back to day one. I mean, if you're the one selling the business, be honest from the start, because it's going to be pretty obvious if you're processing a thousand orders by hand every day and shipping them out, you're not doing that in half an hour a day. Um, so it's just a case of being being honest and transparent and then kind of everyone's happy. Um, and then the final part is legal due diligence. Again, that is very subjective based on the deal. So if a domain's got a potential trademark infringement or if there's, um, I don't know, let's say you've got a, a, a site that's scraping content from elsewhere, that could be an issue. You might be checking that all the images are licensed properly or if they're creative commons, um, m- making sure, especially of us, because we're, I mean, we're based in the UK and we've got an office in the US, but a lot of our clients are international. So we deal with a lot of cross-jurisdiction deals where you might have a buyer in the US and a seller in, say, the UK or Germany or wherever. Um, and in that case, there's obviously different laws in different countries. So it's a case of figuring out just because something's legal in one country. So they might be running a site that's perfectly legal where they live, but where you're buying it, it's not necessarily legal. Um, generally, that part of due diligence, you would expect to do up front. You would hope you wouldn't have a buyer buying a business if if they haven't realized it's not legal for them to be running. Um, yeah. And obviously, the bigger the deal gets, the more in-depth the legal due diligence can get, especially when it comes to contracts. Um, so, I mean, I guess that's the main five parts of due diligence. It's not really an exhaustive list. There's no right or wrong way to do it. It's just a case of it's a fact-finding, it's a fact-finding mission for a buyer. The more transparent a seller's been, 
up front, the less likely there are to be any issues. And I guess the main thing with due diligence that I've experienced over the years is both parties just being reasonable throughout the process. If a seller's trying to hide things, it's going to cause issues. And if a buyer's getting, not there's anything wrong with being like overly paranoid over certain things, but you've got to be realistic as a buyer and expect there to be the odd issue along the way. And then it's just a decision whether or not you're willing to take the risk, if that makes sense. It does. Um, so jumping into something you said in a little bit more detail about sort of the size of the deal and, and you sort of highlighted that contracts were really sort of the one thing that started to, I guess, um, have more of a dynamic role between different sizes of deals. What would you say, uh, even if it's just to expand on that at one point a little bit, what would you say are sort of the stark differences between, say, a $50,000 sale versus a, a million-dollar sale? Yes, I mean, that's, that's quite an interesting range for us. I and mean, we probably do, sometimes we do slightly smaller than that, but anything from mid-five figures all the way up to mid-seven figures. Um, I would say, generally speaking, the main difference between a 50K and a million-dollar deal, again, I mean, it, it does vary deal to deal. There's no necessarily like right or wrong way to do things, some are easier than others. Um, generally speaking, this would kind of go without saying, the bigger the bigger the deal, the longer you'd expect it to take. Um, and that's not necessarily in terms of finding a buyer in the first place, because most buyers of that level are actually quite organized. But just going through the whole due diligence process, if you've got a big business that's worth a million dollars, you've probably got a lot of moving parts. So due diligence might take we're doing a million dollar deal at the moment, so like 1.5 million, um, and the due diligence period is 45 days. Um, but then on a 50K site, it might be five days. So the yeah. length of time it takes is, is is longer. And then obviously when you get to the contract uh, negotiation stages of bigger deals, on a 50K deal, people are way more likely to kind of agree terms quickly. There's not gonna be anything complicated in there. Um, for a $50,000 deal, it's highly unlikely anyone's ever going to get sued from the agreement. So it's really just a case of keeping it nice and simple and making it fair for both parties. Where on bigger deals, where there's a lot more on the line, there's liability issues, could be financing in the deal, um, and all sorts of potential issues. So the, the contract negotiation generally takes longer. Um, I guess on the plus side, from a, a broker perspective and a seller and buyer perspective, the Generally speaking, on the larger deals, the kind of buyers you're dealing with are significantly more sophisticated and professional. That's not to say like professional buyers do not exist at the 50K level, but if you're selling a business for a million dollars, you're probably dealing with an experienced buyer who knows what they're doing. They're clear with what they want and what they expect, and it's probably not their first radio. It's highly unlikely is someone entering the market for the first time with a one million purchase. Whereas um, from a 50K deal perspective, you could have someone who's never bought a site before, far more likely to come in at that entry level than they are higher up. So from a, a seller perspective, it can often make it easier. And generally speaking as well, from, again, from a broker perspective, it's nice for us. Generally, sellers at that level are more professional. They know what they're doing. They've probably got their books in order. Um, they understand the process, they're realistic. Um, and I mean, also, I guess it goes for a lot of business, like the more they understand the value of a broker, um, they kind of, they're paying for a service because they know they need the service. Whereas on the lower end, often you can get a few few more issues. Um, gen, I mean, general rule of thumb, again, this is very much a 
generalization, but on bigger deals, I found you get less misrepresentation. Buyers and sellers are because they're more professional. There's less lying throughout the process. Things are just a little bit cleaner. On the lower end, you get, especially if you start going into, say, the 10 to 20K level of deals, which we try and avoid now for exactly this reason. There's just so much misrepresentation out there. It becomes a bit of a nightmare. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I guess the main difference is you just get a slightly more professional deal structure, um, and it just tends to take a little bit longer. Um, But, I mean, often the deals can be just as easy as a smaller deal, and if not, sometimes the smaller deals can be harder just because you're dealing with less professional people on both sides of the coin, whereas at the higher end, professionals know what they're doing, and it kind of works itself out as you go. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I've definitely had some of my own horror stories from from buying and, and attempting to buy sites on Flippa uh, that sort of you know evaporated yeah, in there and mean, started poking at them. Well, that's that's how I got started out. I mean, I've been brokering for six years, but I've been buying and selling sites myself for probably six, almost seven. I'm feeling quite old now. But um, so I definitely got into the industry the hard way. Spent my own cash, lost my own cash. So I, I certainly know what it's like at well, all ends of the market. So they kind of started out buying sites for 50 bucks and moved up now. The kind of sites are probably like 150K. Um, yep. So yeah, I, I, know that, I know what it's like. I've kind of been there, done that, which I guess helps being a broker if you've actually done it before. I think that makes a lot of sense. So do you have any, any uh, stories about any really strange types of sites? I realize you probably have some really tight uh, tight-lipped sort of uh, non-disclosure and confidentiality agreements, but just generally speaking, is there any like you ever uh, work on a deal where like the, the site was selling like hip replacement parts or uh, like exotic lizards? I mean, I know that, that it's the internet, so every, you know there's the strangest you can as someone can imagine is out there, and somebody's paying money for it. Yeah, I mean we've done. I mean over the years, I don't have our exact number of deals, but it's like way over 200, and we are. I would say we're relatively flexible over the kind of businesses we take on. We're not set in our ways. Um, so we take on a lot of random businesses. I think you were just saying like hit replacement. So um, a couple of months ago, we just completed the sale of a stairlift website. So it was an information site all about stairlifts for your home. Um, that was quite an interesting one. It actually <laughs> took quite a long time to complete just because a lot of people just felt the the niche itself wasn't very interesting. And they were saying, hey, look, I don't need a stairlift. I'm a... 30 year old guy <laughs> what are you talking about so you often find that the, the strange deals while they do sell um often it, it's quite difficult to find a buyer because people are kind of set in their ways as to what they want to buy um and while a, a business or a niche might be very attractive um such as the retirement niche i guess is where stairless fit um it can be quite challenging to persuade buyers that they should buy something that's, I guess, like a non-sexy niche. Um, but then if you go... Oh, I, know all, it, yeah, I know all I mean, about the non-sexy products. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's kind of where, where the money's to be made. And then, I guess, you go the opposite end of the scale. Let's go for a, a slightly more interesting one we did recently, um, especially, like, in the gaming niche. We recently sold a Minecraft server. Um, so I'm not a gamer myself, so I don't really know much about these things. But a couple of my programmers from the team who love and they play Minecraft every night. Um, and we'd never seen a Minecraft server before it came in. It's not a traditional sale as such, because it's not really a website. It's more of a, um, well, I guess a game server. So we'd never really seen anything like it before. 
Um, but you, you can get some really interesting ones that come through the door. And obviously, now I've been doing this for so long now, I see a lot of different niches. Not necessarily that would come on, but a lot come on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, I guess we've gone all the way from stair lifts that are kind of aimed at 80-year-olds to Minecraft, which is often played by 10-year-olds. So you get a real real wide spectrum, and it means that my um, my experience of selling businesses and the kind of things I've seen is very random. Um, and if you're ever sitting by my PC and looking at the kind of ads that come up and are retargeting me, um, it can be quite a strange experience because I visit a lot, of, <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of very odd websites, so people must think I've got very strange interests that don't really overlap. Um, so it's, it's certainly interesting being a broker, the kind of stuff that comes in. So um, well, I guess well, one question, I, I, I actually had this uh, penciled in earlier in, in my question list here, and I, I, I seem to go, I just glazed right over it. What's a, a typical fee that, that somebody could expect to, to pay for you know, professional uh, expert brokerage services from, you know, from the seller's perspective? Yeah, so it depends on deal size of us. Generally speaking, if it's a, if we go back to our example of a million dollar deal and a fifty thousand dollar deal, on a million dollar deal you'd expect to pay ten percent. That's somewhat of an industry standard. Um, and then a fifty k deal would be fifteen percent. Um, but there aren't, there probably aren't all that many brokers out there who do sub hundred k. So generally speaking, around fifteen percent, and then above that, expect it to be negotiable. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, over say half a million, it's 10% would be an industry standard, and there's generally not that much in the way of negotiation. Yeah, that, that seems fair. Um, and just to clarify as well, that's just a fee you pay on completion. You shouldn't be, well, 99% of the time, you shouldn't be paying anything up front, um, especially on sub, two or three million deals, um, and you would expect the broker to manage the entire process for you. You don't want to be paying a broker who just say lifts your business up on Flipper and leaves it, or or whatever. It should, you should be you should expect a a full service for that. Yeah. So what would you um what would you say is one of the most common aspects of of a deal that uh, is is I guess commonly overlooked by a, a seller? Yeah. So it's, I mean part of my job is to deal with all potential sellers as and when they. They come through the deal. So some, sorry, come through the door. So I speak with a lot of people every day with varying levels of business size, various level of business experience. So the, the youngest seller I had last year was 17, um, yeah. and the oldest was I think 70. So you get a real range of life experience, real range of cultures. The 17-year-old guy was from Pakistan. The 70-year-old guy was in the US. So I deal with a range of cultures, a range of um, ages, range of experience, um, and expectations. So I'd say probably the main thing that is a, an issue across almost every deal is your financials and kind of getting your books into order, um, especially on lower-end deals. Um, if you, say, got a site making $50,000 a year, you don't necessarily have an accountant. You might do the books yourself. You, you might not do them that often. Um, so the, the key is making sure that your financials are in order um, before you, if you, especially if you're trying to sell privately, that's absolutely essential, and it's often a bit of a deal killer. Um, I guess one of the advantages of working with a broker is the broker should have enough accounting knowledge, which is a large part of the, the broker's role, to help you prepare the accounts and present them in such a way that's 
clean so that you you would never want to work with a broker who just puts your numbers out as as you do them you'd expect to answer some questions similar to if you're doing a tax return or whatever with your accountant you'd expect similar questions from a from a broker um, but it's probably yeah the most overlooked by owners that they need to have their numbers in order people often expect just to be able to submit their tax return from last year show that to a, a buyer and expect them to make an offer um, and I mean while that's not impossible the, the the more clarity a buyer has over financials and the more they understand the dynamics of the business the more like they are to pay more money for it so if you if you you're very vague with what you can supply or the proof you have of income doesn't really match up to what you say you're making then you're not going to get as much money for it for a business um so probably most overlooked and again that's going back to like a big or small deal generally speaking the bigger the deal is the more likely a seller is to have um a decent accountant their books in order they're probably going to understand their numbers whereas on the lower end buyers often haven't got a clue what their numbers are i know when i started out i had literally no idea what i was making on a monthly basis um so yeah i'd say financials are probably the number one thing there Got it. That, that dovetails very well right into my, my next question, which is uh, what, would, what would you um, give us some practical advice for a website owner who's looking to position you know, their e-commerce website for sale? Whether, yes. you know, whether that's, you know, they're hoping to sell in the next three months or they're hoping to sell in the next 12 months. Yes, it's a good question. Again, it kind of, if you speak to a, a, a broker, I mean, if you ever look and sell a business, definitely worth speaking to a broker in advance, even if you're not necessarily committed. Because um, part of a broker's job is to advise advise on an exit and you'd expect that to kind of be part of their end fee so a lot of my time is spent speaking to people like you say three months in advance of sale 12 months and making sure they've got everything in line and ultimately an organized seller is good for a broker if you go for a broker or for a buyer um so i think the number one thing the overall overriding thing is making sure you're organized so get your financials into order if you don't know what your financials are doing then make sure you do understand them. Um, if you've got any other websites in your portfolio, make sure you can split out the income. I mean, if you're using AdSense, for example, that's quite easy to do because you get URL channels. Um, but let's say you've got a, let's say you've got an e-commerce website that accepts PayPal, and you've got five other e-commerce sites that are all accepting PayPal. Make sure you can split out the the sales. So in that case, you could probably do it by different email addresses or whatever for the payments. Um, but making sure you can prove the income from that particular site or business is important. Um, this one's not essential, but I'd say I always advise people to do it just because of what buyers expect these days. But install Google Analytics. Um, buyers generally want to see it. I know some people in, especially SEO circles, are a little bit paranoid about analytics from time to time. So. If you're absolutely against using Google Analytics, then go for some go for a second tier tracking service like Clicky. It's probably the second most popular one that comes along. Um, and Pivot, avoid anything. Pivot's pretty good too. Yeah, Pivot, yeah, it's another popular one. And avoid anything server side because it's too easy manipulated. So Webalizer or Stats, anything that comes with cPanel. Um, yeah. <laughs> five years ago, you, five ten years ago, you might have got away with it, but these days people expect to see Google Analytics or like, yeah, like you say, Pyrrhic or um, Clicky are common. 
Um, so make sure you can prove your traffic. Um, I guess if you're very, if you're like me and you're a pretty disorganized person, you want to make sure that your tasks are well documented and you know what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, from a buyer perspective, if they're coming into a business where it's a complete mess, the seller hasn't got a clue what they're doing, they don't write anything down, then they're either not going to buy it in the first place or they're not going to pay you as much for the business because they're going to spend six months after taking over trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Um, so if you've got any day-to-day -day tasks, just start documenting it. I mean, it doesn't need to be anything. You don't need to write a book or a complete manual, but if you can just kind of write down the processes you go through. Um, and if you don't have processes, like a lot of people don't, try and make them. So if you've got an e-commerce business, map out the entire process, whether you go through, you might ship the products yourself, you might have a fulfillment center, you might go through something like uh, fulfillment by Amazon, um, or you might drop ship the products. Make sure you've got a standardized process for everything there. So for orders, um, returns, or anything like that. Um, and I guess the same goes for support questions. If you've got an e-commerce business, people ask, ask a lot of questions pre-sale. Um, and you, let's say you answer everything by email at the moment, and you're an industry expert. So let's say for argument's sake, we go back to our stair lift business, and you're selling stair lifts. The average buyer coming in probably doesn't know anything about stair lifts. So you want to yep. make sure, with most, with the vast majority of businesses I see, the questions you get are generic. There's probably 10 questions that 90% of people ask. Um, so either build out a, a decent FAQ section on your website or build out a support ticket system with um, a knowledge base or whatever. Um, so a buyer can come in and kind of feel comfortable. Um, I was speaking to a buyer yesterday and he's in the middle of a deal and one of his concerns coming into it is that the the seller of the business um, is very technically minded and has quite a technical product but hasn't documented out support that well. So that's something the, the seller's kind of working on um, now to get into line. So the more organized you are and the easier you make it for the buyer, um, the better. And obviously it, it does depend on the specific business and the size of the business. Um, but the more transparent you can be with everyone, especially with your broker or the buyer, um, generally the easier the process is going to be. Got it. So I got one final question for you. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's probably going to be some people who are really curious about this. I'm actually pretty curious about this. Have you ever sold a site that was pre-revenue? Pre-revenue? That's an interesting one. I mean, that's probably the most common request that comes in that we don't do. Um, and I'd say the main reason we don't do it is because from a broker perspective, obviously you only get paid on completion. Um, and the buyers we have on our list and the buyers we go after expect to pay like very set. I mean, there's a very set way to approach business valuation. So if a business is pre-revenue, it's difficult to put any um, like common metrics to it. You don't really know what it's worth. If you came to me with a business that got, say, a million visits a month, but it wasn't monetized, I would have absolutely no idea what that is worth. Um, so I, I would say it's, it's probably not impossible. It's not impossible. I know people who I know people who have bought sites that are unmonetized, but generally speaking, they would be strategic buyers. 
And to be perfectly honest, if you've got something like that, you don't want to be speaking to a broker. You want to be going directly to, um, yeah. you want to go directly to the the buyer, um, and see if you can work out a deal directly. So, I personally have not, um, but it's certainly not impossible. Interesting. I was going to say I've I've I've, I've approached trying to do projections, like performing projections on. Uh, pure traffic sites, and we use like the base metric that we would use on would, would back into page views and ECPM, and we usually try to use you know a relatively conservative but pretty industry standard ECPM or earnings per thousand impre- earnings mm-hmm. per thousand impressions of yep. uh, five dollars. So yep. you know you take a site that's got five million page views, divide it by a thousand, so you know you're down to five hundred thousand times five, and you know hypothetically that would be worth worth a quarter of a million dollars at a five dollar. Uh, per thousand page view earning grade. Yeah, if you wanted to work it out like that, I think. I mean, if it, if you're talking lower end, so let's say it's ten thousand dollars, then you probably the, the buyer is probably going to want it for other reasons. So they might be in the SEO space and they might want it just because it's a a decent strong domain they can have as part of their network. Um, but at the higher end, I, I personally haven't seen many deals beyond either through myself or other brokers or on Flipper or wherever you might see a public marketplace and it's always very difficult uh, there is a school of thought out there with valuation and i i mean i would say that the people that use the school of thought are generally people who haven't actually sold many sites before but they'll do a method similar to yours and they'll multiply out what they say the traffic is worth how much it costs to buy the traffic in in adwords or whatever um and while that works well on paper I mean, a buyer, if you've got 250000 like you were just saying, as a buyer, you can go out there and buy a business making a solid, say, $90,000 a year. Yep. Or are you going to take a punt on the business that could make $5 CPM or could make $0.50? Cents? So the, yep. buyer's, the buyer's reaction would generally be, if you think it can make that, prove it. Because there's never, never, <laughs> what the, problem with, the problem with pre-revenue versus actual proven revenue is... You never actually know what's going to happen to a site until you change it. Um, so, for example, if you've got a site that's not monetized, it might pick up organic links in a lot easier manner. People are going to be happy to link to you because they don't think it's a commercial commercial site. Um, whereas as soon as it's monetized, that might no longer happen. So savvy buyers will know that and be aware of it. Um, so generally speaking, if you've got a site that's pre-revenue but gets traffic, um, just monetize it for a month, ideally three. I mean, the vast majority of buyers are going to want 12 months of financials, but experienced buyers who know what they're doing wouldn't necessarily shy away at a site if the traffic's been, say, consistent for five years, but you've only put ads up for a month. I mean, it's doable. So it's not impossible, um, but expect a buyer to call your bluff. And if you want to, if you're going to put a number out of what you say it's going to make, or what you think it can make, and therefore what it's worth, you're going to need to be able to prove it. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. Well, hey man, thank you so much for this for taking the time. This has been really, really informative. I mean, I learned I learned a whole bunch. I think I think uh, everybody's really going to enjoy all of the information and insight you provided. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. Hopefully, it's um, of use to some people out there. Oh, absolutely, and uh, I'm. I'm I'm do my best to encourage anybody listening who's interested to uh, to reach out to you directly. It's it's hard to find good, trustworthy brokers that have a uh, you know the plethora of experience uh, in in doing these types of, of you know 
sales um, these days, at least in my experience. So uh, thank you again, Thomas. Uh, really been a pleasure. Yeah, no worries. And obviously, if anyone wants, if anyone's got any questions, feel free to get in touch. I mean, if I can't help you, I can almost definitely point you in the right direction. So yeah, don't be scared to ask. Awesome. Thanks. Okay, Nick. Well, thanks so much.